Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Margot McQuay, who is a writer, a filmmaker, a mother and a grandmother. Her debut novel, The Birds That Never Flew, was shortlisted for the Dundee International Book Prize in 2012 and also longlisted for the Polari First Book Prize in 2014. And I'm also hoping that another novel from Margot is in the pipeline. She's also an award-winning documentary filmmaker, picking up Royal Television Society Scotland Awards for her films about Jock Steen, Jim Baxter and Tommy Burns. While there have been numerous other excellent documentaries, most recently one on the only Scottish footballer to win the World Cup, Rose Riley, and a moving film on the former British number one tennis player, Elena Beltaccia, who sadly died in 2014 at the age of just 30. And don't be surprised if more awards follow for these films. And our latest project is a film about the remarkable football success story that is the Glasgow City women's team. On our website, Margot also states that, to quote, I made two children who are now making children too. That's the biggest achievement of all. And she divides her time between Glasgow and Scotland and Rathlin Island and Ireland. Margot, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad I'm sitting down after that introduction. Well, Thank actually, when I, when I had a look at, you know, the, the, all the different things you do across a whole variety of, of platforms, as well as being a mother and a grandmother, I've always wanted to know what the secret, you've discovered some secret to stretching out time <laughs> beyond the seven days. You've maybe just cracked the Beatles eight days a week secret. <laughs> There's 24 hours in a day. I think that's the thing that people often forget. I think when you love doing something that you find the time. You know that as well as being a writer, because I used to always think, how do you manage to do all your work at Celtic? And then you were turning out all these books, like, you know, like there's three, there's four, there's five. And like, where on earth do you find the time? But it's because you're really compelled to do it and you love doing it. Cause I, I, it's one thing I always find interesting that, and I think people have probably asked you this, you know, genuinely about where do you find the time, but... So often if you're not doing something at night, like writing or reading or whatever, you do end up spending hours just watching TV and that's when you realise that a lot of time you're, you're, you're wasting when you could be doing something else. Yeah, I mean, I think um, a lot of people maybe, they like they enjoy maybe going to the pub or going doing different things like that, but I enjoy actually sitting down and writing. So I think it's just shaping your time into doing what, you know, really suits you and suits your creativity. And yeah, and, and you have to do it because, you know, like you have this need to do it so I feel as if sometimes I'm not really in control of it but we only have one shot at this life and that sounds really cliched and it is really cliched but actually it's really true so just give it your all and that's what I try and do. Now you and I in our previous season both worked together at mm-hmm. Celtic and we, we had loads of conversations about books but also both at the time were aspiring to, to publish our own novels and we've both been lucky enough to do that and it's I still sometimes think back to things like those conversations and you know it's it, an aspiration becomes a reality and it's it's a real thrill oh it is it is and um, I remember you actually very kindly read um, some earlier versions of my first novel and you must have been like oh my god that's absolute shit <laughs> it got better <laughs> um, so yeah no it, it it's you kind of have to remind yourself of that I mean sometimes there's this focus when you're a writer on what you're not achieving you know, like, 
you know, maybe you're getting a rejection or you're not delivering as quickly as you want to or you're not feeling you're getting to where you think you should be, even though you don't really have a true sense of where that is. But to sort of take a step back and think, no, actually, I've actually already achieved a lot, you know, and to just allow yourself to build on that and not try and be too much of a hurry to get anywhere because writing's really quite lonely. You know, it, you can be in quite a sort of dark place in periods with it because... All you want to do is share your words and share your stories and it can be a little bit frustrating sometimes when you think that your voices are not being heard by an audience. But, you know, the fact that you've written them and you've curated them and that you've, you know, you've actually delivered in something that you set out to do should be something to make you feel good about yourself and forget about the the wider picture because I think... If you're meant to get there, you'll get there. Yeah, and I suppose rejection is part of, of the writing life. Crystal you just Owen. got a rejection before you come in the door, Paul, <laughs> to be honest. Oh, you, you, hate, you hate that disappointment well. But Crystal, who was on the very first episode, and he, he tells me a story of he, he's done a playwriting workshop with a, a friend of his, and the way his friend starts the class, and it's all these people that are aspiring to, to write plays for the stage or for the screen, he comes in with a, a massive folder and just slams it down the table and says that's what it's all about so they're all looking and he said that's my folder full of rejections if you can't handle that just leave right now oh my goodness because that's what it's you know but you just have to keep going because as you say if you've got faith in what you do you think at some point something will happen for you exactly here's hoping well that's weird we'll 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 let it (laughs) yeah as I said you and I have had loads of conversations about books so I was really interested to hear what your your selections would be so your first book would be your favourite book from childhood. It's an Enid Blyton book. I was wondering why, in particular, you chose The Secret Island. Well, The Secret Island is something that even the title is really evocative to me because, as you mentioned at your introduction there, I share my time between Glasgow and Rathlin Island. So islands are something that I absolutely adore. And that notion of a secret island was really intriguing. So this book, it's got twins in it as well. I'm a twin. So I often look at some of the, the books that I really love in life and I realise that there's twins in them and I think, yeah, that's me. But anyway, it's about uh, this older sister, uh, Peggy, and, and twins and, you know, they've got a nice happy life with their adventurous parents and they, they go missing. Um, they, they go to live with their aunt and uncle who are really quite nice to them but then their parents go missing and so this aunt and uncle turn quite nasty and they treat the kids really, really badly. And then they, they become friendly with this little boy who's not got a terribly great life, little boy Jack, and they sort of come up on this plan to run away and they run away to the secret island and it's just fabulous because as a kid who who had their own secret island who just absolutely loved everything about that island life it was reading something that okay so it's Enid Blight and kids right (laughs) so you know they're not you and I's world you know like we're Glaswegians you know we're working class you know we're not really engaged in the kind of lashings of ham of the famous five type thing but the characters the way the characters are drawn in this book is they're kind of faceless which is kind of strange you know they're not really identifiable as visible people so like I was able to see like myself my twin my brother my sister you know going off on this adventure and anyway they they run away to this island and you know they become so self-sufficient they build a house and you know they grow their own food and they have all and there's lots of jeopardy and stuff in it as well it's not just like this idyllic little life and you know like there's there's moments where they go to the mainland to sell their produce and stuff to survive and they and they take a cow over to the island and they swim it over and stuff it's just a fascinating book which has an absolutely wonderful ending 
which you're not going to tell him. No, no, because I think it. I think you really have to read it. And yeah. what um, age were you when you first read oh, it? Oh, I must have been really young. I must have been probably about. I'm going to say about six or seven, to be honest, because I was reading like from very early in yeah. school. Although I'll probably check the dates. And, yeah, no, it probably was around about then. But the thing I love about it is I read it to my kids and my daughter loves it. You know, she nice, absolutely loves this book. Yeah. So like, I just know that my, gra- you know, my grandkids are only four and a half and five at the minute. But, you know, I'm just waiting for that moment that they're ready for the secret yeah. island. So it touched me. Was that an easy choice to make then when you were thinking back to your favourite um, book from childhood? No, I, I know I've picked, an, I, you know, we've talked about this before, and I've picked another book, I've picked a book called Grayling. But I think that was more personal because I, I won it as a prize in school. I remember getting the top prize for excellence in primary three and being absolutely overwhelmed because I didn't know I was any good at anything. Do you know that way as your kid, you just don't know? Yeah. You know, and t- to win that prize was just, I was absolutely astonished and having to walk through the, the whole school to go down and pick it up. I had no idea. So that book kind of stayed with me as kind of like, you know, having meaning. But yeah, no, I think it was an, it was an easy choice in a way because... It feels a little bit a little bit like my life as a kid, even though it wasn't, obviously. You know, I didn't run away to a secret island, but when me and my siblings were on our island, we would sort of disappear because it's a very safe place. So you just went out and you stayed out all day. You know, there was no kind of like, where are you going, what time you'd be back. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. You just went off and you had your adventures. So we would have our own little adventures and build little camps and hideaways and stuff like that. And it was just wonderful. And it's great, as you say, it's nice... That, you know, there's certain things that you can pass on to your, your children. Sometimes it's just in values. And, and, and obviously your daughter will have picked up just things from her upbringing, yeah. you know, the way you brought her up. But just to have that book that she then loves, and then she'll obviously be desperate to then pass it on to her kids as well. And it's nice that it's kind lovely. of link between the generations. Yeah, it's, it's really nice. It's nice to know that um, she has, I, I suppose, you know, her childhood was a bit like mine in the sense that when she was a kid, I, I took them to Rathlin and they had that same kind of, island experience and that sense of adventure and stuff so it really resonates with her as well and it'll be the same for my grandkids because they're wee islanders too and if you haven't read it then you can read it or you can read it to your children or grandchildren and we're not going to spoil the no. tremendous ending for you we take a step on then to your, your formative years as we, we carry on your literary journey and you kind of gave me an explanation for this and I really like it because on the one hand you, you've, you've chosen a poem but then you said if that's because it led you into all sorts of other things. If that was cheating, you were going to choose a book. But I actually like the idea that, I mean, you're certainly the first guest who's, in those formative years, chosen a, a poem. I really like that choice. And, and the poem is Ode to a Nightingale by John Keats. Yeah, it's really special to me because I think it changed my perspective. I, I was always a reader. I mean, like, massive reader throughout my life. And, you know, there, there were books that had an impact on me. You know, like, in primary seven, I remember reading the Across the Barricades um, so oh Sadie, God, yeah. yeah, it was Sadie and Kevin and again that was something that was quite relatable because you know you're growing up as a Catholic in the west of Scotland but also having spending your time in Ireland so you're very aware of religion, you're very very aware of sectarianism and I remember being called a dirty Catholic and, and thinking it was spelled K-A-F-F-L-I-C-K <laughs> right. and, and not really knowing what it was so yeah. it kind of like opened my eyes and sort of allowed me to see really a lot of background as to why there was that kind of level of hatred. But then from there, my reading was, my reading was quite random because I had older brothers and sisters and things. And so I was reading really diverse things from Valley of the Dolls, I mean, like being really young, reading right. stuff like that, The Thorn Birds, you know, just kind of like stuff that you probably wouldn't really expect to read as a kid that age. 
flowers in the attic, all those books, like, you know, sort of 11, 12, 13, just because they were the books that, you know, my mum or my siblings were leaving about the house. Carver Name of Pride, that's one that actually really, really um, had a huge impact on me. But the British girl who um, worked for the French resistance, she was sent over Secret Service and she was eventually captured and tortured and killed. So, like, my reading was so diverse. It's funny you mentioned the, the Thornbirds. I'm not sure if there was a storm for the book, but certainly when the. I read the book first and the, then the it came on the TV. And I don't know if it would happen now, but, you know, that was that was a TV series that was condemned from the pulpit. Uh-huh. I remember the priest telling people they want to watch it, which, you know, if, if anything's going to encourage people to well, go Well, we've already it. read it, mate, <laughs> in loving it. Um, yeah, so it was dead to first, and then I remember, so you start to change in school, obviously, like, we had we The Merchant of Venice, which I really didn't like, um, but then I started to sort of think differently, Hamlet totally changed me, but the thing that really, really had that impact on me was in that poem, and I think the first line, my heart aches, have you got it there? Well, do you know what? Actually, I wasn't familiar with the poem. So oh, when, when you had sent through your list it. and I, I printed it out, so I've actually I've got the poem there. I don't know what you read. Um, well, that, that first line, I've got it here as well, actually. My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock I had drunk. And I, I remember, like, you're kind of like 14, 15, and I was quite a melancholy uh, teenager, I think. And, you know, you, you kind of feel this sense of, like, I think you're just beginning to wrestle with the world and, and with you and kind of growing to yourself and you're just unfamiliar with how your world's changing and stuff. And I remember that first line and just thinking, oh my God, that just feels like me. <laughs> I feel that. And, you know, so much of it. And, and then the line as well, "'Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness. Like, wow. It just really, really hit. It really hit me. And I can't really understand why because if you think about it it's not in the least bit relatable you know this is a 25 year old poet who's English who is middle class who's in a completely different world from us but there's something about that writing that just knocked me off my feet and it it just it it really genuinely made me want to learn more I just needed to have more of words that were beautiful because before that, I had just been engaged in stories. And stories are great. Storytelling's massive. Like, you can sort of disappear into them. But then you kind of realise, oh, hang on here. There's this, this beauty in words. You know, sorrow can actually be really, really incredibly beautiful. So how did you stumble upon this? Well, it was school. So yeah. we, we had to learn it in school. And I remember kind of thinking, oh, God, a poem. But then, honestly, the, first, the teacher putting it down and then, like, Oh my god, and and just being sucked in, and I mean, there was a time when I could actually recite that whole poem. Right, that's impressive. Cause it that, is that, very that impressive. That's a long. I can't poem. do it now. <laughs> I can do little sections of it. Yeah. Um, now more than ever, does it feel uh, right to move on when like, that whole sense of him, you know, just thinking he's ready to die and like being like, oh my god, how can you feel like that and just wanting him to survive and wanting him to come through it? I think it's the first time I'd read something where I could see some things that I'd never seen before. I mean, obviously with the Secret Island and stuff like that, you know, it's a visual experience, but it's a visual experience that I'm relating to my own experiences. You know, so when they're talking about, you know, different aspects of the island, I'm not picturing, you know, Blyton's island, I'm picturing my island. But this, for the first time, had me seeing things that somebody else was describing to me in the way that they wanted me to see them. You know, it's like I can hear the bird, I can see his surroundings, I could really create the the scenery that he was trying to depict for me and I just thought it was remarkable. So it kind of set me off on a journey of 
poetry and, and proper literature, as you might call it. Do you know, it's one of the things that I've, I've found really interesting with, with some of the book recommendations we've had on the podcast, particularly books from another century or two, three, four hundred years. And I, I think this, I think this poem was early 19th century. I think it's remarkable that, you know, that poem was written at that time and over 100, 150, 60 years later, you're reading it and it just it springs out at you. It's mad, I, isn't it? You know, but I suppose the majority of, of what had been written at that time is lost through time. Uh-huh. The, the quality, the cream always rises to the top, and that's obviously with something like that. Yeah, I mean, it led me to... Um, to Yeats and, and Heaney which I guess it sort of brings it back to more things that maybe I'm a little bit more familiar with certainly culturally anyway you know Keats is a million miles away from any kind of life that I could ever live but you know it just opened my eyes to seeing words in a different way and I still feel like really emotional every time I read it because it still has that exact same impact on me do you every now and again do you go back and read absolutely. it absolutely yeah? yeah yeah I think there are moments when um I don't know, maybe you're just not feeling 100% right with things. And I think I'll, I'll, I'll pick that up and read it and just feel like a little bit better. Even though it's a really depressing poem. I don't know why it, it ignites something in me that... It also takes you back to a specific point in your yeah, life. And as you say, it's the kind of gateway to discovering a whole new raft of literature. Yeah, so that was me for quite a while. Like, I wanted to be a poet. <laughs> I'm such a bad poet. And I, I wrote poems for years and years and years. Because that was it, I just seen myself as like, you know, one of these people. But yeah, it, it, but it, it very naturally then led me on to, to reading some amazing books like yeah. Lanark and a lot of the books actually that have, you know, people have been mentioning in your podcast. But I don't think I would have got to them in an emotional way without this poem. And you did say, because obviously you were hedging your bets whether I would... <laughs> I, I said I mean, it. <laughs> I always have to say, there are no really any, any rules. rules, so if people want to break whatever rules you think, that's fine. But you did say if it was cheating for the yeah. poem, the book you would have chosen would have been uh, 1984. 1984. Yeah, I think 1984 um, really struck me as well. I was a kid at school who I remembered actually saying to my modern studies teacher, I can remember this clearly, standing in the corridor and Thatcher had gotten and saying to him, do you think there's going to be a nuclear war now? <laughs> like, why I was in that space, I don't know. Um, but see, I think a lot of us at that time would that. have had those conversations at school, yeah. because it was, a, it was probably the height of the Cold War, and, and I think a lot of people would have... Yeah, felt like that. Yeah, yeah but I remember, um, you know, so you were kind of quite invested in communism and, you know, that kind of other life that these other people live, because we were kind of taught that that was a bad thing. And I know it's not directly connected, but... You know, 1984, in a sense, was how the world might be if, you know, we allowed these nasty um, dictatorships to take over. And I just loved Winston and Julia's love affair. I just loved Julia because, I guess, finding a, a, a female voice that um, was really empowering and there was something about her that was strong and confident. And, I mean, obviously it doesn't end well. But yeah, it was it was a book that really kind of captured me. And, and again, I went on to, to read lots and lots of Orwell. Because I've, I've been saying for the last few years, really since, I mean, I think it's an incredible book, but ever since uh, George W. Bush's quote, War on Terror, which is just classic Orwell uh-huh. speak, and I've been saying to people, you need to read this. And it's uh, for me, it's, it's almost an irony of maybe he was, at the time, thinking this is what's going to happen in, in Stalin's Soviet Union. But actually, I think 1984 is reflective of what's been happening in the West, and particularly in the United yeah. States, and in recent years of that kind of that double speaking, you know, even you see the President of the United States saying, don't believe what you see, believe what I tell you. And that's 
It's totally that, yeah. I remember actually when the film came out, and I know you've been talking a lot about this as well, like films and books and how they can sometimes be so far apart, but um, I just thought the casting of Winston and Julia was perfect. Was this the John Hurt? Yeah. Yeah, I thought he was extraordinary. Yeah, I thought, oh wow, that's how I totally would expect them to be. So that was nice, yeah. So that would be my other one, but definitely the poem made me want to think about writing in a different way. Yeah, and I hope people will check that out. Please to, do. To a Nightingale by John Keats, and maybe we may get Margot on at a future podcast <laughs> and she can re- recite, recite it, it all. <laughs> and, you know, it's made me think, I really want to learn it again properly, because it's a, it's a good party trick, isn't it? Something like and that. also, if you have at one point known the entire ah, it's in point, there somewhere. Oh, things will click back yeah. into place. Well, you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddyhead, my guest, Margot McQuaig, and we're on to the third choice, Margot, and that is a book that you'd recommend to anyone. Yeah, I think the book that you'd recommend to anyone, I suppose, changes all the time, and that's the good thing about books, because one that you might love today, you'll find another one that you love even more tomorrow and stuff, so there's, it, it's just an endless joy, um, but one that sticks in my mind at the minute is by a writer called Malachi Talak who I actually came across by reading an article on, I think it was the Island Review, and just thinking, oh, he's a beautiful writer. You know, his words, like, really touch your heart. And then his novel came out, I need to look at the text, I'll remember it because it's quite it long. Is the, the Valley, Valley at the Centre of the World. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of titles, and, I mean, I'm glad you've recommended this, because, I say, one of the great joys of doing this podcast is getting all these recommendations. I've not read it, but just seeing that title, I'm thinking... I want to read that book and I want to love that book. It's so good, honestly. Um, Let me tell you, though, it's a book where maybe on the face of it, at a kind of top level, nothing really happens in it, right? Uh, Which is a strange thing to say because lots of things actually happen in it. So it's set in um, Shetland Islands. It's in Shetland dialect, which is one of the things that hugely attracted me to it because... Is that challenging to read? Well, there's a a glossary and, um, you know, it tells you what every kind of word means yeah. so as soon as you've read that I, I say after the first sort of five ten pages see I quite like the you're kind of into it and you've probably the same you've probably read a lot of American literature and, and depending on the setting quite often it's in the, the local dialect and yeah. you just your ear clicks into it your ear totally clicks uh-huh. into it and I, I just love things that are written in dialect as well because I think it really allows you to get into the character's head in a much more specific level um, so that that's one thing that I really liked about it but you know it's about um, so this guy Sandy and his girlfriend Emma they, they go back to the valley in Shetland where she's from and move into this house next to her parents and he's he's from the Shetland Islands but he's from he he's from Lerick from the town so he's a townie so even though he's an islander right. he's not really there's seen a yeah there. there's a distinction you know it's very very territorial so where he goes with his girlfriend feels like the wilderness it feels like out of touch with the world really and it's quite difficult and challenging from him because he doesn't really want to be there but quite quickly after they move there she dis- she goes back to Edinburgh so she leaves and leaves him with this choice of leaving or staying you know, integrating into this community that isn't really his community or, you know, going back to a place where she doesn't want him anymore. Um, so it, it kind of just unfolds as his relationship primarily with the land and, sp- and space and, um, you know, just that whole sense that you can actually be of the land 
that you know that you can kind of have sort of physical roots with the earth. You know, he starts to evolve in the sense that he tries really hard to integrate it with her parents and become a crofter and, you know, fails miserably and then tries again and fails miserably and there's all these other sort of supporting characters who, in a sense, are a bit like him. They're, they're kind of misfits in that environment. You know, there's one writer whose husband has died, so she kind of escapes to the Shetlands and she's writing a book about an older woman that lived on the island who died and she's kind of trying to recover and um, rediscover her past by digging into this woman's archive that she had. Um, you know, there's an alcoholic guy, there's a, a towny couple that come to live there and he kind of sort of flips and has a little bit of a tete-a-tete with the guy's girlfriend and oh, just nothing really happens but everything happens, yeah. it's hard to explain. You kind of with you're sucked in by the characters and it's quite unusual for me to be sucked in by a male character. So I kind of quite enjoyed that. Because I wondered as well some of the appeal, you, you mentioned it's written in that Shetland dialect. Yeah. And obviously your novel, The Birds That Never Flew, it's written in the kind of Glasgow vernacular, yeah. and, and it's not—it's not spoiling anything for anybody. It's not read it to say that the Virgin Mary appears in it, and is one of the best characters because of that brilliant Glaswegian that just completely throws you. But yeah. is that the appeal of obviously you've written in your voice and you hear somebody else writing in their voice? I, I find it really hard not to write. I mean, my novel that I've just finished—well, um, not just finished—it's gone out into the world to try and find a home. Um, that again has a dialect of the characters. I just feel as if like. It's more authentic, I feel. And I know it's something that a lot of publishers are completely put off by. So I think as soon as you go down that road, you know, you're you're setting yourself up for a fall, really, because, you know, like, they'll, they'll say people will understand that or you won't get with it. And I think you will get past it if you, you know... Well, that's the challenge. We're, we're intelligent people. <laughs> well, that's the challenge of reading, because when you do get past that, then you... Because if you don't, then you're closing off your mind to so many great books that are written yeah. in a specific way. You know what it's like when you're a writer, your characters drive you and how they speak is how they speak and you're not going to like make them be something that they're not because if they're not authentic to you then how are they ever going to be authentic to a reader who's never met them before? So I just go with what's instinctive to me and it always seems to be that kind of use of language. Now I'm not going to ask you necessarily what the new book's about. Are you allowed to even tell us what it's called? Or? It's called The Road End. It's a bit about um, that whole sense of land and it's about a twin brother and sister, funnily enough, twins coming back into it and how their life has evolved since the death of their parents around their family home, which is uh, which is set out in, in, in the countryside and how they're, each of them are trying to break away in a different way from this hold that the land and the family home has in them. So they're having these sort of different um, battles with trying to escape from what they think they shouldn't really have anymore. Um, there's lots of stuff going on. So it's <coughs> a kind of family family legacy, kind of um, maybe what um, a kind of sunset song might have been if it had been written now. Excellent. <laughs> well, we'll say that <laughs> I'll, anyway. I'll keep my fingers crossed for that. Because one of the other things Thank I was you. going to ask about, the you know, the fact you've, you've chosen the valley at the centre of the world, we touched on it earlier on, the fact that you're very much island is very much part of your upbringing it's very much part of who you are now and anybody who, who follows you on Twitter for example there's always these I think any writer that follows you on Twitter is always endlessly looks at these stunning pictures that you yeah. post from Rathlin Island whenever you're over there and the view is just breathtaking it is and I think um, yeah I think that's where my creativity stems from there's something about that place and 
I don't know. I mean, obviously, we we spent all our childhoods there, and you know, my dad's from there, and there's a family connection, and it, it's just hard to explain. But as soon as I step off the boat, I kind of feel, I feel rooted. I feel like physically that I'm part of it. You know, my grandparents are in that earth. You know, that earth yeah. is connected to me, and I'm connected to it. And it just makes me feel quite sort of. It's a place that absolutely replenishes me because. You know what it's like. Work. It's such a contrast to your. Uh-huh. I mean, your we touched on it again at the start of your, your hectic your, your life. Hectic <laughs> life, yeah. You know, and, and I don't think people will appreciate just how much work goes into, for example, just even one of the, the documentaries that you do each time. It takes so much out of you, and the contrast then with Rathbone Island must be quite. Stark. Yeah, I think it kind of like it really kind of. This sounds again cliche, but kind of replenishes my soul and and just calms me and levels me and inspires me and I think that's the thing absolutely inspiration and oh, bucket loads when I'm there again is it something that you're very able to as you, you touched on the fact that your kids would have been grown up as island children and then you can then take your grandkids over and it's again it's passed on from uh, generations past to generations future it's, it's lovely because my kids um, my, my kids best friends are actually all on the island because there's a whole b- batch of them that all kind of grew up the same age and they have this incredibly close relationship. So so my kids and their pals have all got kids now. So, like, my wee grandkids, I've got best pals in Rathlin who are, like, the same makes age. Old, doesn't it? it does make it <laughs> But, um, so it's lovely. It's just lovely that that relationship will continue. Yeah. So it kind of makes you feel a little bit settled. You know, nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to kind of not be here to see things. But kind of knowing that that part of my legacy will continue is really nice. And, uh, as I say, it's, it's an enviable thing whenever we see Louise. Ah, it's pretty bonny, isn't it? <laughs> it can be. I'm sure, it's not, I'm sure it's not always like that. Oh, but even when it's wild, it's beautiful. I, just, I love the wildness yeah. of it. I love the stillness of it. I love the beautiness of it. I love the noisiness of it. It's just, there's nothing to not like about it. Well, I'm sure if the Rathlin Island <laughs> Tourist Board are listening, they'll be <laughs> giving you the thumbs up. <laughs> we oh, move God. from a book that you'd recommend to anyone to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. Yeah, I kind of struggled with this a little bit because um, I could have said certain books and then I kind of was feeling a bit of a guilt trip and thinking, oh, I would like somebody to be saying that about my book. So there are books that are hugely popular, really successfully, critically acclaimed, which I'll read and I can't finish because I don't think they're any good. <laughs> so, But I won't go down that road. I'm going down this particular road. It's Tony Blair's book. You're kind of like, oh my God, what were you doing reading that? What, what even is the title? So You've got the title there. I've My Political right. Life by Tony Blair. When they won that election in 97, right, that was a massive turning point. I mean, I, I remember being exhilarated. I was so happy. We had a big party that night for the election. Everybody came dressed in, like, their colours. There was, like, about 60 people in red and one person in yellow, which is kind of interesting because there was only one person that supported SNP at that point. You know, so having... That's really interesting. It's really interesting. I think that would be completely the reverse now. Absolutely, yeah. Um, But it was a period in life where, you know, with all those years of Thatcherism and, you know, the poll tax and the minor strikes and, you know, just that whole sense of injustice of the way people were treated, particularly in Scotland... You know, you kind of grow up really resenting that whole Tory regime and stuff. And, and then Tony Blair came in and there was all this hope and it was genuine hope. It was genuine hope because here was a socialist, left-wing government that were going to deliver in all these things and we'd all be equal and it'd be wonderful. 
and then obviously it all went tits up and it ended horribly and you know we ended up thinking who is this guy so you think then that I wouldn't read the book because I think right we know who he's a charlatan like yeah. he's showing himself up for who he is but there was something always niggling in me that do you know what Margot you had so much faith we had a picture of Tony Blair and his family outside number 10 up in the toilet that's how much we thought this guy is going That's to change. beyond. This guy is going to change the world. Um, so I read the book because I thought, right, there must be something in here. You know, maybe he's lost his way. You know, there must be some good that began in him, and at some point he's he's gone bad. But see, from the first line of that book, I could hear his wee high pitch. Like, look at me, I'm really important voice and like, oh it just goes from bad to worse but I kept reading it and kept reading it and kept reading it because I guess it's like the old Catholic faith thing, you kind of grow up and you think there must be some good somewhere in there and then and then I remember getting to the point where he was talking about a good Friday agreement and one of my heroes in life is Mo Molan because I think she's really changed the face of, of politics and relationships between Scotland and Ireland and you know, in terms of um, getting us through the troubles and stuff and she's a massive part to play in the success of that story. Does she even get a mention other than, like, her name? He took all the glory for himself, didn't share it with anybody. But you think about Mom Mullen and even Bill Clinton, how much of a part they yeah, had to play. Absolutely. You know, not, not just their mothers as well. And he just takes it all, me, me, me. Oh, yeah. honestly. It's only retrospectively, I think, Mom Mullen has got the credit. Yeah, she's she amazing. I read her book years and years and years and years ago and I thought, God, she's amazing. I love her. And then she died and it was dead sad. But, um, yeah. Because so, I, always, I always feel that the... I always feel the mistaken labour and it's a kind of... It's always a fatal mistake now. I mean, they had such a big majority in 97, they could have done anything. Yeah. They could have changed things that would have taken generations to overturn. The way that Thatcher did, yeah. the way that the Conservative government will do now, because when they get in, they look after their own. Totally. Labour's mistake is always trying to appease the other side, rather than looking after their own. Yeah. If they do that, they're in for longer. But they also make fun... I mean, you know, it's no, no surprise it was a Labour government that introduced the social security system, the National Health Service. Absolutely. But it was, it was the biggest missed opportunity, I think, of our political life, apart from the 2014 independence referendum. Well, I know. But, yeah, so that guy, like, he, he obviously just... He just lied about the weapons of mass destruction and took us to war and just obliterated lives and, and destroyed the hope that we had. And he really destroyed hope. So... And, and, did and you actually book, finish it, the book? I did finish it because I kept, I kept going because of that thing, that thing that you have. Like You kind of think, oh, I must try and find some sort of good in something, but there was nothing there. I really struggle nothing. with, in general, with autobiographies because I think, by and large, because by their very nature, they're very self-centred and self-serving, that a good autobiography stands out because the, the person who's writing it is so brutally honest. Yeah. And, and their, their, their faults, their failings as well as their, their good points. So for example, in terms of football, Tony Cascarino's autobiography is as good as you'll get because he really okay. picks on his own faults and his own failings and is, is brutally honest. Whereas somebody like I read John McEnroe's and it was, again, it was like anything that went wrong in his career, it was somebody yeah, else's fault. fault. And that's just not the reality of, no. of life, you know. So, so it doesn't surprise me that Tony Blair would take the credit for everything and the blame for nothing. I've taken that pain for everyone, Paul, so nobody else needs to read it. <laughs> so a book that End nobody of. should read. That's, <laughs> I've done that it. may be a new category. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've done it. I've been there, took in the pain. Yeah, so don't do it. Okay, well, that's fine. That's, uh, that's pretty comprehensive. <laughs>
and if Tony Blair's listening, uh, which I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's not, no. uh, I'm, sure he, I'm sure he'll get over it with all the, the yeah, millions, exactly. all the millions he's made. It'll be my fault. Yeah. Uh, we're on to the last question, Margot. That's the the last book you read on a currently reading. So you've given me the the last book you read. Yeah. And also the book that you're currently reading. So I the last sort of full book. I mean, I'm, I tend to um, when I'm in a busy filmmaking period, I don't tend to read too much. But the last book I read was The Testaments because I had to read that because obviously you have to read it. I'm going to have to read it again though because I read it still in the vein of being embedded in the series and only being able to see the characters. So this is for everybody who doesn't know it's by Margaret oh, yeah, Atwood sorry. and it's the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, so it, it, I read it too close to watching Handmaid's Tale. I, I couldn't use my own imagination at all. At all, at all, at all. And, and sometimes that's maybe not a bad thing because... You know, the environment's been established for you, but yeah, I need to just leave the other stuff to disappear for a while and then go back to it because I, I'm, I'm just not sure about it. I know that sounds, it's a Booker Prize, it, it's it, a, well, half a Booker Prize. Yeah, that's winner. a real controversy because I know that the fiery fact that they split the, the prize caused controversy. I know one of the shortlisted publishers were furious because they felt that the book and the, the explanation for giving it to the Testaments was on her body of work which is not what the prize is about. It's about that book yeah, that exactly. particular year. Yeah. I watched, it, I think it was BBC4, I had a documentary recently, just round about to tie in with uh, the publication of that, but it went back over a whole life, Margaret Atwood's life, okay. which is a brilliant documentary, really honest about her, but she's an extraordinary woman. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not I'm not faulting the book. I just feel as if, like, is it, because it was, it was the, the wrong the time. I loved The Handmaid's so Tale. And... I could never have imagined that be made into TV series because obviously we all read it like way back whenever it came out years and years and years ago, and it kind of reminded me a little bit of Lanark. Funnily enough, I know that it doesn't make any sense because they're not in any way similar or connected, but it just reminded me of it. So reading the Testaments, I, I, do you know what? I just raced through because I wanted to know what was going to happen, and I wasn't wanting to know what was happening in the book. I was wanting to know in my mind what was happening in the series. So that was the wrong thing. That that's not the premise from which to read a book. So would you go back and, and I will, read the two of them back to I th- back? It's exactly what I'm going yeah. to do, but I'm going to let it. I've not, yeah, yeah I, um, something I watched on TV. It quite quickly disappears from my memory. So you know, give me another year from now, and I won't even remember who was in the Handmaid's Tale. So I think I'll go back to them both then and read them together. Again, we were talking earlier on about 1984 and how. Sadly, worryingly, some of it reflects on what's happening in the world. Yeah. Just the Handmaid's Tale as well, again, particularly in the United States, where you see some of the the draconian laws that some of the states oh are God, bringing in. It's crazy. It, it's actually quite... <clears throat> you know, even ten years ago, for everybody to say these things would happen, but people would dismiss it, but actually it's quite scary. But again, it's she's obviously seen something at the time, but it's maybe taken a bit of time to get to fruition, but now you're seeing... What's happening? Yeah, it's it's really really scary, and it's hard to separate the fiction of the novel from reality just now. So, take a step back. I'm yeah. sure it's absolutely brilliant, but for what it is as a book, yeah, not Margot's interpretation of what has happened after you know the last episode of the series. So, <laughs> move on. <laughs> yeah. And the book you've also chosen a book that you're currently reading, which is Sightlines by yeah. Kathleen Jamie. So I'm kind of, when I say I'm reading it, I've read quite a lot of it before, so I'm sort of rereading it because um, I recently was gifted for Christmas Surfacing, which is her next book. So um, Sightlines is, um, it's not a novel, it's a book of 14 essays, 
and Kathleen Jamie uh, goes to sort of different places like Shetlands and, and she tries to get to St Kilda and it's just basically a book about looking and seeing and not just you know properly looking just opening your eyes so the essays aren't necessarily connected you know some of them are about cancer and her wanting to kind of analyse how it physically manifests itself in the body because she was kind of a bit fed up with like you know it's just nature you know like you, you sort of curl up and die and she wanted to kind of know why to like you know whale watching at one point in it she says um, something she says a phrase about you know that they're watching 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 in the sea like for something and then like the moment her eyes had adjusted to seeing what it actually was it was gone you know so like a whale had appeared but it's such a good phrase because I think that's really really true because I think you can you can be looking at something for a long time and not really see it you know so um because her name is one that that wasn't familiar to me until I started doing the podcast Karen Campbell the, the writer I think the book that she was currently reading at the time was Surfacing. Oh, and right, she's, so that's about She's a big, she's a big fan as well. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's been nominated for, I don't know if it's the Highland Book Prize for 2019. Okay. So I think through word of mouth, I think people are, they really like her style of writing and, I had and, to, and the way she looks at the world. Yeah, it's, it's just that way of looking. And I think it's really, um, it's quite amazing because I do think that even when you're surrounded by beauty, you don't always kind of take it in. So it's just encouraging you to be a little bit more conscious. But um, I actually met her. She she appeared in Rathlin like a while ago, and um, How random was that? it was totally random. She was doing. She's involved with Irish Pages, so they do that Crossway Festival between the the, the literally and it's music, literature, right. poetry. It's a festival that's been running for a few years now between Ireland and Scotland, and it was in Belfast. So she had a day off. And the guy that the Irish editor of Irish Pages said, "Well, why don't we go to Rathlin?" And the people in the the Rathlin, so they'd phoned over the, the island to say, "Like we're coming over. Is there anything we can do?" So they phoned me and they're like, "Oh, but Margaret, you're a writer. There's a, this writer coming. Don't know if you've heard of her, Kathleen Jamie." And I actually had her book like <laughs> sitting in front of me that on the coffee so table, bizarre. and I'm like, "Oh my God, Kathleen Jamie's here." I was like, sure. Well, that way you're kind of like really kind of apprehensive and a little bit nervous about meeting somebody. But it was a really fruitful meeting and there's things coming up. So Good or well, we feel. Yeah, so she's wonderful. Um, really unassuming. I think I think the fact that she's a poet first and foremost is something that kind of draws me a little bit to writing as well because even though, oh, I don't call it nature writing, but there's something very poetic about how she sees the world. Right, well, that's quite intriguing. Yes, I know. <laughs> and I mentioned right at the, the very introduction, as we, we're, we're almost at the end of this podcast, but I mentioned that you, the latest project that you've been involved in is a documentary on Glasgow City. Now, for anybody who doesn't know Scottish women's football, it's an extraordinary story, an extraordinary success story. You know, they're, they're reaching the quarterfinals of the Champions League for a team which is effectively an amateur team against some of the top professional teams in Europe. Is remarkable. It's two women who started this club, the the, the journey that they've been on, and I think it's a it's a really timely documentary about a, a great football story. Yeah, I mean, that's it. And it, we're looking at well, I'm looking at the women behind the formation of that club. So, Caroline Stewart and Laura Montgomery um, in 1998, kind of like they played in the football team. They were a bit fed up with you know the the, the state of Scottish women's football, the lack of recognition, the fact that they were fighting all the time, and the standards were so poor. And you know they wanted to change it, but they didn't feel that they could change it within that club because 
it wasn't theirs to change. So they just decided to set up their own club. I mean, just go and set up a football club. Um, and they've made it the single most successful football club um, in Scotland. Um, they've won 13 titles in a row, but it's getting to that Champions League. It's astounding. They've got there, uh, that's the second time now they've made it that far in the competition. But when they set up the club, you know, they said, we're going to be the best team in Scotland, we're going to dominate in Europe, we're going to do this, do that. And, and they've done it all against the, the backdrop of, you know, Scottish society is like it's fairly misogynistic in general but then when you get to Scottish football yeah. I mean my god uh, like women do not have a space there but they've carved out this space for themselves and it's not been easy they've fought constantly to to achieve every little bit that they have and you know and there's always somebody there trying to snatch that success away for them so they're, they're two remarkable women I'm absolutely overawed by them and I just need other people to know how wonderful they are yeah. and they're, they're brilliant role models for women and girls so it's a great story so we look forward yep. to, to seeing that and soon <laughs> excellent and, uh, and everything else the, the new novel and whatever else you're up to with Kathleen James we shall, <laughs> we shall wait with bated breath um, but as I, I said to right at the start, you and I, over the years, I've, I've had loads of book chats. It's always been great. So I'm, I'm so pleased that, that you were on this Read All About oh, the Podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for asking me. And more book recommendations for me? Yeah, good. Get out there. Get reading. Stop yeah. talking. Well, thanks very much, Margo. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.